1: You get stuffed with ravioli.
0: If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in an Italiano and your life will be great.
1: Hey there, paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. Today is Monday, October 12th. So let me wish everybody out there a very happy, healthy, and blessed Columbus Day. It's Italian-American Day across the nation, and I'm sure there are many, many people out there celebrating. But it's uh, an appropriate time for us to come to this final episode in our Conversations on Columbus series. And uh, boy, oh boy, i got to be honest, I'm very, very happy to see the holiday come. It's always a great chance to engage in wonderful Italian-American content, and there's going to be so much going on today and so many things online and on TV. But man alive, i got to tell you, I am ready for this series to be over. Um, I promised I'd be honest from the outset of this, and if I'm very honest with you, this has been exhausting. I feel a little bit like um, like I do when I go into confession. I'm very anxious. Um, I know the stuff in my mind that I believe is wrong, but I also know some of the themes and things that might be deemed institutionally prescribed uh, deserve context. So that's kind of uh, the feeling that I get when I go into the confessional. And, you know, similarly, I'm, I'm kind of racking my brain to make sure I don't miss anything. And ultimately, I know that I'm going to come out the other end feeling better for having done this, but to be honest, not necessarily cleansed of my feelings of uncomfort around the subject matter. So I don't think there's any solution in here for me. And that's why this episode, if you notice on the graphic, is entitled uh, Conversations on Columbus, Conclusions, with the big question mark, because I'm not quite sure that I have conclusions. Uh, even though that's what I hoped I would find on the outset. Just to recap for everybody, this is the sixth of six episodes. So the previous five, we've sort of laid out our journey and the questions I wanted to ask. We looked into the hard historical resources we had, primary and secondary documentation. We then spoke to critics of Columbus and Columbus Day and Columbus mythology. Uh, from there, we took a little detour to separate out the Italian-American approach and the questions that it brings up from a more general approach to this uh, conundrum. And finally, last week, we heard from Columbus's supporters. And so here we are today to try to sort of wrap everything up and tie a little bit of a red, white, and green bow on this thing and see if we can't kind of come out the other end with what was useful in this exercise, because I think there was a lot of utility, and I've been getting a lot of great responses from it, and uh, shockingly enough, it's been picked up by a lot of other media sources, and uh, we've been getting calls and doing interviews and things like that. I never intended to sort of make myself a talking head on Columbus, but when you study this much of a subject and try as hard as we have to sort of dig into exactly what the truth is, I think that that becomes contagious, and, and, and I And it seems like people really respect the process, and um, I'm very thankful for that. And speaking to that end, one of the things that I did intend to do that did not come out of these six episodes, I had really hoped for at least one other episode, and I wanted to have conversations with Native American leadership. This has been a theme recurring in my life since my time at the National Italian American Foundation when a lot of this Columbus stuff started to explode, and there I was in the seat as the president and COO, of a major national organization trying to sort of wrestle with all of this and the discontent on both sides. And I've always wanted to make sure that the conversation could be had, especially when we were talking about the Italian-American perspective, but even in the American perspective between our community and the indigenous community. And unfortunately, we did reach out to various tribes, to uh, speakers and writers, and even to multiple national Native American organizations, the equivalent of uh, Native NIAFs or ISDAs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But unfortunately, we were not able to get any of them to come on and participate in these conversations. But coincidentally, when this airs today, Monday, October 12th, it'll air in the morning. And at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'll actually be taking part in a live conversation online as part of the Wall Street Journal's community conversations. Uh, I'll be joining the Journal's Ebony Reed, and Kevin Gover, the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. And uh, I have to give a huge shout-out and a gigantic grazie to Anne-Marie Dooling, one of our longtime listeners, who actually invited me to participate. She's at the Wall Street Journal and uh, had been listening to the series and reached out to me through our website contact form and really set this whole thing up. And I first and foremost appreciate her confidence in what we've been trying to do here in the series and bringing me the opportunity to do this on a wonderful stage like the Wall Street Journal, and in such great company of Kevin Gover and Ebony Reed, and to get the message out and finally have a conversation with Native American leadership. That's something I've really always thought was important. So, Emery, thank you first and foremost for listening, and thank you for your confidence in what we're trying to do. And I got to tell you, I've had some conversations with Emery and Ebony and now Kevin just about what the Wall Street Journal is doing with these community conversations. It's a wonderful new initiative that they created in the wake of the tragic death of George Floyd. And these conversations are all available for free online. You can join in through the web link that's available on our social media. If you hear this in time or if you've seen it on our social media prior, free and open to everyone, even those who are not subscribers to the Wall Street Journal, which is a really great way to lead what I think are super important conversations that have to be had now. And in a time and place where we don't see enough of these civil conversations around important issues, it's really nice to see that the journal is taking not just a journalistic approach, but really a civic-mindedness to leading these conversations, bringing them out and making them available to everybody around the world, to not only facilitating the dialogue, but then also opening up to questions from the audience, and even eventually sharing these questions and some of the themes that come up with their writers and reporters. And I think that that's really amazing and a wonderful way to integrate important conversations, not just at the moment, but also going forth in the editorial pursuits of this much esteemed journal. So thank you again, Anne-Marie, and thank you to everybody at the journal for inviting us to participate. And if you out there in the audience are going to take a listen, find us online, and hopefully it'll be fruitful and worthwhile. So something very exciting for all of us here at the Italian American Podcast, and frankly the last time for at least a couple of weeks that I'll talk about Christopher Columbus because this has been on my mind and on my tongue for months now, as you've heard, and uh, I'm looking forward to going back and talking about canning tomatoes and things like that, and I'm sure many of you are too. But before we can do that, let's see if we can't get some conclusions from this series, and like I said last week, we heard from those who would support Columbus's case Uh, those who argued that the history was not necessarily done well or that the context was not there or put some detail around some of these accusations. And hopefully uh, everybody out there found it to be a fruitful conversation. But I think for this episode, one of the things I want to make sure that I do is really share with you the themes that have come up, the recurring thoughts that have come up in my mind as I've had these conversations and as we've all journeyed down this road together And like I say, it's taken me all over the place to learning things I had no idea about, reading stuff that I never thought I would read, interacting with some of the most fascinating people I could have ever imagined speaking to. And so I want to really make this a very personal one. So we're going to have to continue down this path with a few presuppositions, some places where we have to have context, not around Columbus necessarily, although there will be some areas where we ask for context around Columbus, but really context around what we're trying to dig out. Sometimes we have to sort of remove variables going forward to tease out this route towards conclusions or findings or at least something we can sort of put out there into the ether. And so to begin, one of the things that's come up my mind is this question around what this whole disagreement really is about. And so if we can suppose, just for a second... Even for those of you who are not supporters of Columbus, if you could just suspend your disbelief for a moment and suppose we could exonerate Columbus completely of the charges against him, if one could accept that even the worst of his sins, the sending of 550 Carib natives into proposed slavery, if we could quote unquote forgive this as part of a wider system of enslavement based on a then-widely-held belief in enslavement as it related to sort of a a proto-just war theory, or if we can excuse Columbus, this decision to suggest and send these people into proposed slavery based on their own engagement in cannibalism, there's still many, many people who are either uncomfortable with or out-and-out hostile to the celebration of Columbus— even if we could really presuppose for a second that he had not engaged in any system around slavery, I still think there are people that are genuinely disturbed by Columbus. And I wonder if that's because what many are really uncomfortable with is not the man, but what I keep calling the moment. And that moment that I'm referring to is the Columbian Exchange, which of course occurred exactly 528 years ago today, October 12th, 1492, when Columbus and his three ships finally sight land in the Caribbean. And I've really come throughout this process to the conclusion that despite whatever historiographical confusion or, frankly, shortcomings exist in how Columbus is being taught today, or maybe even because of them, most people that are on the anti-Columbus side are actually more distressed by the effects of his landing here than even the specifics of his biography. Because the truth of the matter is, I think we have, in this series, seen, if nothing else, that Columbus's accusers are using snippets, versions, I think ideologically charged portions of the record, and in some cases, they're, they're flagrantly wrong. I have come to that conclusion. I'm not necessarily a defender of Columbus, but I will say... A lot of the stuff that I've read has been just bad history. And even with that being the case, even if we could make clear to everyone out there who opposed Columbus, hey, this is not exactly as you're being told or taught or as you're finding online, I think people would still be uncomfortable. And I think that's fundamentally because many people are uncomfortable with the effects of the Columbian exchange. So I guess after everything that's been done, After all this work, after all these conversations, the most important question I need to ask is, what's really quote-unquote on trial here in the contemporary court of public opinion? Is it the man, the myth, or this moment? And as I say, I really do think it's the moment more than anything else. If you listen to the prior episodes, you remember Professor Steve Cerulli introducing the idea of post-colonial theory, post-colonial interpretation thought, and a new way of studying history, contrary to what others might call the sort of great man history, or in a much more specific sense, what Steve referred to as settler colonialism, the idea of a history being written by colonial settlers who come and wipe away what existed before. And I think in all of the conversations I've had since those conversations with Steve, this has really stuck with me. I think this is a big theme going forward. I actually think this is the nut of the entire Columbus conundrum. So this kind of leads me down two paths. Number one, can we blame Columbus the man for all of this? And frankly, does it even matter whose name is on the holiday? If a saint had led this exploration, if the most enlightened and effective administrator governance has ever produced had been in charge, and the men left behind had still committed their own atrocities, would it really matter who was the central figure in all this? And secondly... What does it mean if people are consciously or subconsciously actually criticizing the joining of these two worlds and all the bad, but also, therefore, all the good that came with it? I don't want to engage in apologetics or attempt to be um, convincing John, and yes, that's uh, that's a shout-out to those of us raised watching Fraggle Rock. Um, so let, let me just be clear. There are some who would argue Things like, well, but the Italians got the tomato, or those kind of oversimplifications. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about there was bad, but there was good. That, to me, is an invalid argument. We have to look at these things as a whole. You can't separate out the bad from the good. It's impractical, and it's not fair history. What happened happened, good, bad, and ugly, and we need to talk about it but we also need to put it into context of what it means to who we are today and whether or not it's worth either replacing and reimagining the celebration or continuing with the reinterpretation or recommitment to the celebration. Essentially, I want us to acknowledge whether this conversation is really about Columbus or about the Columbian Exchange, because I think that those are two very different conversations, and having one as a metaphor for the other is obviously not working. And so One of the voices that you've heard from before, just briefly, is Professor Silvio Lissetti. And Professor Licetti, as we've introduced in previous chapters of this exercise, is not a Columbus expert. He's written on Columbus multiple times and has been very well regarded in his writing, but he's actually a professor around the themes of civilization. And so I think it's important to bring him in now to sort of flesh out what exactly it is that I'm getting at.
2: Well, my point of view on the whole matter of Columbus is a little bit different from the typical history. I look at Columbus as a figure who is very important to the spread of civilizations. And like any other figure of that sort, there are many things that happen, some that are intentional, some that aren't, uh, that cause repercussions that last right to the present day. So looking at it in the broad perspective, what happens when civilizations clash? And they've always been clashing throughout history. What did Columbus do? And what is he unfairly accused of doing? These are the the more important questions for today. So if you look at what he did his first voyage, this is when they met. And this is the critical point. This is why October 12th is the national holiday and so forth. But what happened on those days, those first days? Do we really know? No, we don't know. Columbus has his diaries and he explains things, but he doesn't give you a minute-by-minute account the way we would get it on TV now. But what we gather is that he discovered land that he didn't really know what it was, thought it was the Indies, and named the people the indians or los indios but um, apart from that it's a work in progress that we have to try to get back to in terms of what documentation there exists so we take a very broad view two civilizations meet things happen one is an advanced civilization one is not so advanced that's the island of Hispaniola. Well, what happens in any case when advanced civilizations meet more primitive societies? Usually, if there's confrontation, the advanced civilization wins out. It spreads its beliefs. It spreads its patterns. It spreads its diseases, if it has any, and institutions and so forth. This is what happens when civilizations clash, and both sides get something out of it. It's not that a people is totally eliminated or exterminated whether this be alexander the great or caesar or the vikings or or whatever uh, you do have these moments of intersection where crisis occurs and great change occurs and that is what happened when columbus came to the new world
1: so what took me 15 minutes to get to i guess professor Lissetti said very well in three which is No matter Columbus's intentions, this was clearly a clash of civilization. And that kind of clash is not unprecedented in human history. It happens frequently, and it happens in diverse geographies. The difference here is this is a clash of civilizations that did not know one another existed. And if we are going to offer to Columbus the contextualization of his time, I think this is a really important point. And again, I'm not going in for apologetics here. I'm not even saying, let's look at Columbus through the lens of a society that had different views on slavery and captivity and things like that. As we'll hear a little bit from Professor Robert Carl, who we've heard from in previous episodes, even as Columbus is undertaking his later voyages, there are the beginnings of rumblings around the morality of slavery in Europe, most importantly in the Royal Spanish Court and in the Catholic Church.
0: Well, the worst thing that Columbus did was he enslaved 500 Indians. That is a huge blot on his legacy. And that's the rationale that a lot of Catholics were putting forward at that time, that it's okay to enslave people who are cannibals because their culture is so degraded. Slavery itself, though, is, is not okay. And huge parts of the Catholic Church were, were lobbying to make slavery illegal. And it was made illegal in 1540. Charles V, I believe, banned slavery in the Spanish Empire. So, so yeah, this was a debate that was going on very shortly after Columbus's time.
1: The reason that I wanted to bring that concept into the conversation is to say, when we talk about context, it's not just to excuse the sins of Columbus's voyages or Columbus's administration because it was a different time. What I'm trying to get at is, even then, there was an awareness that there was an injustice in the system of slavery the concept of slavery but also on a broader scale i want to offer columbus that contextualization even if we don't engage in this idea of was slavery or any of his behavior acceptable in his time let's just talk about how foreign and earth-shattering the experience must have been for columbus to come to this new world i think that's something that we really overlook this is not a matter of simply interacting with a new society. This is a matter of an entirely new world exploding in front of the eyes of those who didn't know it was there. So we have to remember when we look at Columbus that this is a man who set out thinking he was going to set up a trading post in a kingdom that was known and understood, so his actions would have been simply commercial. And he arrives in an alien world where he's now faced with the idea of defining this place and defining its role in relation to the old world. So I'm going to turn to Professor Jim Pancrazio, who we've also heard from in prior episodes, to just give a little bit of depth and detail into exactly how incredible this was for Columbus and any of the men involved in the first voyage to experience. I really do think it's akin to getting into a rocket ship and landing on a different planet and finding life. And as Professor Pencrazio will talk about, this is the invention of a whole new consciousness, a whole new world, a whole new glossary, a whole new understanding. And Columbus can only do this through the eyes of the old world. And I think that's really important for us to understand as we try to dissect what the Columbian Exchange really means.
3: One of the difficulties that we had from the onset was the discoverer versus colonizer. Uh, did he discover or did he encounter? And and I try to cut through that and say, well, he invents. And I think that's a perspective that was presented by Edmundo or Gorman in one of his books, The Invention of the America. He has to invent concepts. So what he does when he arrives in the Caribbean is he transposes this entire history of Mediterranean imagery onto the American Mediterranean, which is the the uh, the Caribbean. So, for example, there are moments when Columbus says, "Today I saw three sirens, uh, uh, mermaids," and he said, "But damn, damn, they were ugly." And um, we find out later, okay, he's probably talking about manatees. We see other moments when he's um, having a an attempt to converse with indigenous populations in Hispaniola. And he thinks that they're describing another tribe. And he describes that other tribe as the, uh, the, the in Spanish, it's the canicefalo, the dog-headed men from classical literature. I suspect they're talking to him about alligators um, but what Columbus does is he takes all that classical imagery that comes from the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, and mixes it with Marco Polo, and then takes all that baggage, and then comes to the Caribbean. But what he does is he projects all of this imagery onto the New World, and some of that imagery comes comes from uh, the Bible, for example. When he sees the, the nakedness of the, uh, of the indigenous people, the presumption is that he has returned to the the lost paradise, and even in the fourth uh, in the fourth voyage, he says, "Oh, I could see it um, and and he provides a description uh, description of the lost paradise, which is uh, located somewhere in the South American continent, and describes it uh, Freudians love this description because they say it's described as a woman's breast. And um, so that is the type of imagery that I look at as a literary scholar. How is the new being created basically on the recycling of old imagery? There's a vagueness. And that vagueness, uh, to uh, Latin American writers have taken that as a as a foundational vagueness, because one of the words that, That Columbus uses, or the narrator uses so much, is the same word that Marco Polo uses maravilla, you know, meraviglia. There is a, the marvelous, the marvelous. He keeps talking about that. So Columbus becomes kind of a a foundational figure as far as writing and, and creating
1: and describing the New World. So what I'm trying to get across here is that even if we don't want to engage in qualifications for the social norms of his time. We still ought to give credence to just how overwhelmingly unprecedented was the experience Columbus actually had. Um, I keep coming back to the idea that, like, imagine you grew up only playing checkers, and you were convinced that checkers was the only game on the planet, and then all of a sudden you stumble upon a chess set. How do you even know what to do with this? You know it's the same kind of concept, but you don't have the rules. And I know that's an oversimplification, but I guess what I'm trying to get to is Columbus is in completely incomparable territory here. He is the first human being experiencing the making of decisions around an entirely found world. And that doesn't excuse any of his ills. I just think it's really important that we think of him in that way because it's easy to overlook how radical this was for a person to experience. And I think everything we do in this exercise, and and frankly in life, should come from a place of empathy and being in a person's shoes. And you really have to wrap your head around the momentous nature of this interaction if you're going to be empathetic when exploring Columbus. And now, Professor Pancrazio is illustrating this point in his field of literary history, But it's a valid analogy for what Columbus was also experiencing in his interactions. He's not just inventing terms and definitions, he's pioneering an entirely new social interaction. How do you interact with a truly alien culture? And one of the concepts that Professor Pancrazio touches on that I want to kind of explore is this idea that was genuinely held at points by Columbus and many others that they might have found the earthly paradise— and this doesn't just mean paradise as we think of it today, this idea of a, of a perfect place.' got to remember, these guys are speaking from a fundamentally Christian worldview in which the Bible in medieval Europe, because it is medieval Europe that they're leaving, was much more frequently accepted as fact. So he's talking about paradise in a biblical sense, and its inhabitants as potentially a really separate kind of human untouched by original sin, or as Professor Teo Ruiz would say in a much more sophisticated way, a people who are pre-lapsarian, existing before and untouched by the lapse of man's judgment and the fall to original sin.
4: First of all, this is an ambivalent story. So he comes as part of a tradition, a kind of tradition that had already been tested out by the castilians in the canary islands that is to say because you have a superior faith because you are a a believer in the one god therefore you have a civilizing mission the ambivalence that is projected by the first accounts of this encounter between the old world and the new are extraordinary on the one hand these are the pre-lapsarian people. These are the people before the fall. These are the people who lived in a kind of earthly paradise and the Caribbean was an earthly paradise. It looks very different now because of ecological changes and tourism and plantations, but it was a lush, green, plenty of food. So on the one hand, these people are the natural men. One shock is that they have never heard of Christianity. Who are these people? who have never heard of Christianity. So this must be people before the fall, people from paradise, the natural man. They are kind and so on. On the other hand, they have no cities. They have no great level of civilization or sophistication. They are beastly. I don't think that there was ever a debate about the humanity of these natives, but there were questions about who are these people and are they like us?
1: Now, as we talked about in the last episode, a lot of Columbus's inspiration can be traced to his religiosity and his faith. And it's safe to say that through that lens, to our modern sensibilities, it's easy to fault a religion that is evangelical and that is out to convert souls. But the truth of the matter is, as Rafael Ortiz will point out, there's also something to be said for the concepts that come with the Christian worldview— being introduced to a new place.
5: You know, people we talk today about this concept that people have dignity, right? We have rights from God. I say that that concept came because of Columbus because those ideas are from the Judeo-Christian worldview because when he came here, that worldview was not here. People were doing the same things. They They believed that they had the right to conquer the neighbors. You had the Incas, you had the Aztecs. They were imperialistic too. Uh, You had the Mayas, you had the Caribs who were cannibals who believed that they have the right to go and conquer and kill and and enslave and eat their enemies. And also, you had the Aztecs who they would sacrifice thousands of people to their gods. It is the Spanish who stopped that kind of thing. You know, they stopped the cannibalism, they stopped the human sacrifices. You know, the priests start to question about this thing, saying these people. Whatever they're doing is wrong, but they're still human, created with their dignity. So this thing about the dignity and the image of God is a Christian thing that came because of the ideas of the people who came after Columbus.
1: Now, what Raphael is saying, I think it's very important to clarify. It's not that the behaviors that we would criticize today, uh, conquest and war and enslavement, and cannibalism that the indigenous populations were engaging in were unique. Obviously, the Europeans were engaging in much of the same. That's the entire crux of this conversation. But the point is, in their Christian worldview of the time, the Europeans had a sense of what was just based on human dignity, and that was truly absent from the indigenous system. It was a completely novel concept in this new world. And the reason that I want to include this is not to weigh value systems against one another, but because one of the other things that Raphael points out later on in our interview, I think is very important, is this mythology and, in some ways, ideologically driven tendency by many to overlook the ills that existed in indigenous society in 1492— leads to a very dangerous oversimplification in what has come to be known as the myth of the noble savage. Look, Bumble
3: knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better,
2: and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: And again, as I said last week, this clip is going to come from one of our interviews that had some audio problems. So bear with me because I think it's an important one to the
5: conversation. But also Las Casas, he's the creator of this thing that we call the legend of the noble savage or the myth of the noble savage because he portrayed the indigenous people as almost as angels. But then he portrayed the Spaniards as evil monsters uh, that's what is called the black legend and uh and yes it's true that uh spaniards they committed all sorts of atrocities against the indigenous people but las casas was not the, the only one accusing them for for that the first person who deal against these people was columbus because then people used the books of las casas as propaganda especially the book that he wrote is called history of the destruction of the Indies. You can find that book in English. That's the book that people are using to claim that Columbus was doing all sorts of atrocities. But if you read the beginning of the book, you will see that the book is not even about Columbus. It's about events that happened after Columbus was removed from office, or he was already dead. And many of the places mentioned in the book are places that Columbus either never settled there or never reached. So other nations translate that book and they use it for propaganda against the Spanish people. Okay, but the the next one, you should read Peter Martyr because in his version, you will see that the indigenous people were human. They were doing exactly what the Spanish were doing. War, conquest, slavery, uh, because as I said, Las Casas, he portrayed them as angels, all the indigenous people. You know, when he said that the natives were almost uh, untouched by the scene of Adam and Eve, but when you see Peter Martyr, you're going to see the uh, indigenous people acting like like any other human, doing all the things that humans have done
1: through history. So I want to take a couple of directions from this. First of all, the idea of the myth of the noble savage. I think for me, there's A, a dehumanizing to indigenous peoples in this. It's false history, B, and C, and most importantly, I think in a weird way, those who are, Attempting to uphold the concept of an indigenous people's day or an indigenous people's retelling or re examination of the Columbian Exchange, when they refuse to acknowledge the humanity and the ills that existed in pre Columbian society here in the New World prior to 1492, in some sense, they're actually, in some way, doing the same thing that they're trying to undo, which is holding indigenous society to a Eurocentric concept, meaning this society is good in contrast to European society of the time, which was bad. And to me, it, it cheapens the examination of what is an immensely important and absolutely undervalued part of the history of this continent and our country. It takes all of the complexity and human nature that we're supposed to be pursuing in this entire conversation around Columbus in relation to indigenous culture and makes it one-dimensional. And I, I don't know if that's something I'm explaining right, but to me, I have a very hard time with the idea that when we want to talk about the ills of the European society that arrived here... We have to do it without touching on the ills that existed here in the indigenous society. That's not to say that one invalidates the other. It's just to say, again, we're searching for truth and objectivity here. And if we're going to do it with one eye closed, we're not really having a conversation at all. And another concept that Raphael touches on is this idea of the black legend. The idea that for many, even in the era not long after Columbus's death many nations and many scholars in those nations who were competing with Spain, which had a substantial monopoly on New World trade and New World colonization, began to utilize and in some cases exaggerate the sins of Spanish conquistadors in order to validate their sort of sticking their foot in the door of the New World trade. And now what I'm trying to get to here is not the idea of cheapening or, again, validating these accounts that have so much truth to them. What I'm getting at is this sense that I get of a parallel utilization of history for political ends. And that's another one of the major themes that I keep coming back to as I study Columbus. This idea that, much like this black legend, Columbus has continuously, throughout history, been a figure reinterpreted and utilized by groups that needed either a hero or an enemy. And my theory here, that Columbus is more often than not a mythological figure than a real figure, uh, utilized and absconded by those who need a figurehead for their movement, good or bad, is made all the more poignant when you realize that by the end of Columbus's life, he was almost forgotten. Here's Raphael again to kind of explain
5: so Columbus returned back from his first voyage, and he found out that he, the queen is dead, which meant that his titles and all that stuff was not secure. And one year later, he died. Depressed, forgotten, and uh, unappreciated, he was forgotten. I don't know if you knew this story, that also then later, uh, Amerigo Vespucci, you know, he went to explore and he, uh, they published his Version of the story, and he became it was a very popular story at, at a time that Columbus was already forgotten. So, somebody took the name of Amerigo as America and, and put that name on a map, and that's why America became America. And Las Casas, he was upset. He said that it, it should be called Colombia or Columbus or something like that. He believed that Amerigo was trying to steal that owner from Columbus because also, uh, Americo, he wrote that he reached the continent one year before Columbus. But that was not true. Columbus reached Central America, the continents, and South America. He made a map about it, and that's the way that Americo reached the continent, because he was using a map that Columbus drew.
1: Now, I don't want to open up another can of worms and get into Americo Vespucci and whether or not he Got here first, I have no idea. I'm going to take Raphael's word for the fact that Columbus touched foot in Central and South America before Vespucci did. The point that I want to make by utilizing this segment is that Columbus was essentially forgotten by the time he died, so much so that you could even have the questions of who got there first between he and Amerigo Vespucci. So why does Columbus go from almost forgotten by the end of his own life— to an internationally known figure utilized by nations and peoples around the world. Well, in my mind, in the United States, as we've discussed in the history of the holiday, by 1792, he made for an ideal non-British hero, a great figure to be idolized and put on a pedestal for this new nation of America. And conversely, by the late 1800s, when the Protestant establishment was fearful of the newly arriving Catholic masses coming in great numbers as immigrants to the country, Columbus was an ideal villain to be torn down for his Catholicism and foreignness. And at the same time, and in later decades, when we as Italian Americans needed a hero with an appropriate face, uh, spearhead into popular culture, into mainstream culture, Columbus again was the perfect figure to put up on that pedestal. And in some sense, as we're trying to sort of explore in this episode, when we as a nation now find ourselves facing and wrestling with the ills of the nature of our society, the nature of a country built from its founding on the concept of starting over in a new land, Columbus once again serves as the perfect foil, the perfect villain to encapsulate all of those ills.
0: A lot of people in the United States would say that the whole project of founding the United States was a Protestant enterprise. And what went on in Latin America really was a Catholic enterprise. And, you know, there's, a, there's been a debate about Columbus since the founding. In the 19th century, there were a lot of American Protestants who vilified Columbus. They felt that he was Catholic and they said, you know, we should be honoring Leif Erickson, not Columbus, as the, the person who discovered America. It was the Italian-Americans that uh, found in Columbus a symbol of their heritage. I mean, and, and Columbus in his own day, he was kind of a homeless person. I mean, that's one reason he was not respected as a governor in Hispaniola. He wasn't Spanish. He was, he talked funny and he was very controversial in his own day. I mean, Queen Queen Isabel locked him up in prison after his third voyage. He went back in chains to Spain. So, you know, he was a hero after his first voyage and then he was a villain after his third voyage. And interesting, in the 19th century, it was the conservatives that were anti-Columbus. The progressives were kind of pro-Columbus. They were, uh, and this is going to expand the american um the definition of being american and include these italian americans so i don't think it would surprise columbus to see that there is still uh people fighting over his legacy
1: so if i come to any conclusions in this one of them is definitely the idea that this homelessness this frequent utilization by different segments of society both in the united states and around the world, is somewhere that I really actually draw some empathy for the historic figure of Christopher Columbus. I think about the idea that in Italy, uh, he, other than Genoa, wasn't really seen as a useful figure until the fascists kind of saw him as part of their global footprint. And obviously, like I said earlier, there's a sense that I have that we as a community have not only used Columbus when we needed him, but in some ways actually served to obscure his accomplishments and his place in the popular American consciousness. It becomes much easier to vilify Columbus when the popular perception is the only people who are supposed to care are Italian-Americans. And I think that's why, as we talked about in the fourth episode, It's so important to me to detangle my Italian-ness from this conversation. That's another one of the major themes that's been just pounding in my brain throughout this, which is, as an Italian-American, frankly, I'm not that attached to Columbus. It's not like he or his role in the history of the United States or the hemisphere is part of my definition of being Italian-American. I've actually found the concern that I have, the empathy I have, call it what you want, It comes from my Americanness, and it really comes also from my desire to be fair and objective in history. I can't get over how easily we can use historic figures and then overlook the ills of others. I find that really, really difficult because as soon as you start to dig deeply into the life, the strengths, the weaknesses, the blessings and the sins of a figure, then I, I suppose you have to hold that standard to everyone, and I, I think that's really, really difficult to do. I've had guests on these interviews who have said we should have no heroes, and, and I just fundamentally don't believe that, and I don't have any academic backing to tell you why. It's just my sharing of who I am. I believe it's good to have people to look up to. I got a real kick out of Professor Pancrazio talking about another historical figure who Uh, If you go to any souvenir shop, any t-shirt store in the country, chances are you'll find a shirt with his face emblazoned on it, who who himself has a checkered past, but one that we're just not talking about right now. Why do we need heroes? Why don't we look at people as human beings, uh, capable
3: and fallible, certainly, um, capable of good and bad, and capable of being judged, but also capable of having a very clear perspective and a reason why they do things. Um, and, and, and really understanding them within their context. So the kind of the hero worship, I mean, even in my f- academic field is, is hotly contested and it's very difficult. I mean, think of a figure like Che Guevara, uh, which is, um, and in some places is revered as a saint. And I, my, again, with the same figure, I said, we have to read his text. Um, we have to read what he says understand what you're now i'm i'm appalled by some of the things when he talks about the the real revolutionary is a cold-blooded killer i mean that's a direct quote from his last one of his last essays at the same time the people who are presenting this kind of motorcycle diaries version of guevara um i'm kind of like hey wait folks <laughs> have you actually read <laughs> have you read the text okay when we look at at the writing of history they say what is it it's the act of great men that are forging history through their deeds, and then now we monumentalize them as a, uh, as an example of civic virtue that we all have to emulate. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I, I, I want to resist history.
1: For me, I differ from Professor Pancrazio in that I, I do appreciate and value the sense of a hero. I think mythology, which is always an agreed-upon Oversimplification of truth is valuable to creating a national sense of ethos, a national identity and direction, which, while we may be the most mosaic of nations, is not necessarily a bad thing to have a sense of communal values. It's what this whole show is about. How do you take the disparate Italian American experiences that all of us have had and find commonality and value to share? and to create a sense of, of oneness and togetherness that I think is a strength in identity. I think the idea of belonging to something is important. And so for me, all of this has not been about my Italianness. It's not been about the flawed historical work that I see in any of these Columbus defenses or attacks. It's not even been about the idea of this man getting a fair shake, a fair trial in history that I care about. For Columbus as the individual, this man met his maker 500 plus years ago, and he's had his trial, the only trial that really matters. What I care about is the American civic sense, and that we're tearing down not just a man or a mythology or a statue, but a concept of our nation and a concept of a national ethos. And what I believe to be that portion of our national ethos represented by Columbus is the idea that when we're at our best as a nation, as a national idea, as a concept, as an experiment, any man or woman around the world can gather the strength of their hands and their natural abilities and risk it all and come here to build a new life. In essence, to discover their own new world. And while that concept of America has certainly always been more beautiful and pure than its actual practice, I believe it's an important one for us to keep striving towards. I think it's what makes America different. I always say we are unique in our history in that we're really the first nation-state created as a state without a nation. And I'm not to get sociological here but the idea of a a nation as a group of people and an ethnicity a self-aware collection of humans who share a history a language experiences so many many countries are born out of this nation growing the organs of modern statehood a nation state but america is a state before it's a nation and it may never be a nation in that sociological sense where a multicultural multinational, multi-ethnic, mosaic. And I think that that's a really unique and important strength when we allow it and encourage it to be. And so in these incredibly sensitive and difficult times, I think ultimately for me, the most important conclusion is that we can have this conversation and it can turn out a multitude of ways but it has to be had as a civil, thoughtful, and patient conversation seeking fact and seeking fairness. And it'll be no surprise to anyone who's listened to the entirety of this series that the last clip that I'll share comes from Professor Teo Ruiz, who I had such a wonderful time getting to talk to and was so impressed by the elegance and simplicity of what he shared with me. Uh, And I want to share his conclusion to our conversation, because it very much sums up how I feel about the way we should proceed in this very sensitive conversation.
4: I am old, as you can see, and already at the end of my life and career. I didn't want it to end like this with uh, this pandemic, which is essentially prevented me from going to Rome that I was going to do this this summer and Paris. Uh, you know I am a medievalist I work on the Middle Ages and I work early in my career I work on rural history and in a medieval village you either work together or die separately and I think this is essentially what it is it is our history what we cannot do is exclude parts of that history we have to integrate it and see it critically and examine we are not uh, heroes or always good people. We have the good and the bad and we do things that we do not understand the consequences of. How will we, will we remember living in the early part of the 21st century by future generations? What the hell is going on in this country?
1: Wasn't that perfect? perfect way to describe the patience required for this very sensitive topic. And so I hope if you've listened to all parts of these episodes, you feel like you've been treated to objectivity, to truth and the search for fact. And most importantly, I hope you've listened to these episodes, no matter what you believe, with an open heart and an open mind. And if you came in thinking one thing and now you think something else, or if you came in with a strong belief and you've only reaffirmed it. That doesn't matter to me. What matters is all of us together, having set off for this journey together in the first episode and coming to conclusions, question mark, in this episode, what we've engaged in is patient dialogue. And that's the only thing we can ask of one another when it comes to the sensitive work of not only examining our history, but examining who we are as a nation, and most importantly, where we're going in our quest to continuously be a better people and a better country. Because one thing that I came into this believing, and I'm leaving it believing, and hope I always believe, is that at our best, this nation can provide hope to the hopeless. And we're only going to continue to strive towards that goal, and hopefully meet it, By respecting our differences and one another's opinions. So, I hope I've done that in this entire exercise. And I hope everybody out there, whether you're celebrating Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, Italian American Day, or whatever it is, has a very wonderful and very blessed day and comes back next week for more of the Italian American podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week that you're born an italian if you want your life
0: to be great see that you're born an italiano and your life will be great see that you're
2: born an italiano and your Your life